0: Hey, it's Dave Broadbeck here, your friendly neighborhood statistics professor. So this is a lecture for the 22 winter 22 academic year our term. Um, And it is psychology 3256 advanced univariate statistics, we used to call this course, um, design and analysis one, which is clearly the stupidest course name ever had by any university for a course. So we, we changed it, uh, so it's advanced seed rate statistics. It's mostly just analysis of variance. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble. I hope you enjoy this. It's an advanced stats course. The chance of you enjoying it is vanishingly small, but I hope it's instructive. Okay, so today, we two topics today. One of them, oops, let's go back a bit. Let's start there i I want to talk about two things today, they're two pretty quick things. When we ended uh, you know, previously at uh, 3256, when I talked about how when you do an ANOVA, like an example in our quiz here, we have four, we have four groups here, right? Is three degrees of freedom? If we got a significant ANOVA, and I believe with three and 60 degrees of freedom, four would be a significant difference. It just tells you two groups are different. It doesn't tell you which two groups, or maybe all four are different. So what you do in that case, because the null hypothesis, remember, is u1 equals u2 equals dot 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 equals k. So what if I want to know which one differs from which? So let's say you've got a significant F. Now what? Here we go. I want to reveal the slides literally I was talking about. So the null hypothesis is that u1 blah blah up to uk. But it doesn't tell you which means differ from each other. It just tells you at least two are different. Because the alternative to that is at least two are different. Right? So which two? Well, the first way you can approach this is by basically doing a t-test between the groups. Doing t-tests between the groups. But if you did that, the alpha level would go up, right? Or sorry, go down, have to go down. The overall alpha level would go up if we just use 0.05. Because if we had 0.05 and did five comparisons, well, the alpha level is going to go up. Okay. We don't want that. So, what's called, there's a correction called the Bonferroni correction or the Bonferroni T procedure named after some guy named Bonferroni. Uh, Bonferroni's delicious. Do you like that, the Bonferroni? Okay. Obviously. Some of these are jokes. They are good jokes, but they're jokes. They're just barely jokes. So this, the Bonferroni procedure, takes care of this. By the way, I'm going to show you a bunch of formulas that you will never do this by hand. Like no one does these by hand. What you do is when you do the ANOVA procedure in SPSS or PSPP or JASP or whatever you're using, you click a little box that says post-hocs, and it just does them. So I'm gonna show you these to get you the conceptual notion of how they work, but don't worry about actually having to know a formula. I'll point out what I think is important in these things, but no one does these by hand. Like literally nobody. They're done by hand by people who are trying to be mean to stats students in, in classes. So it's one over n times alpha, where n is the number of corrections. So if we're gonna do 3 t p-tests, it's one over three times alpha, our alpha would normally be 0.05. So now it's one over three times 0.05. So that's other words, a third of 0.05, okay? This used to be a really big deal because we'd um, need special tables for this because it turned out that, you know, there couldn't be a table of every possible alpha level. Now we just do I guess if we do it on a computer, we can do it a couple of clicks, and it's no big deal. So this is your t We're going to call it t t-prime. That's what the little, this little tick mark is here. It's a prime. So x-bar 1 minus x-bar 2, that's whatever the two means are you're interested in divided by two times the mean squared error, divided by n the square root of that quantity. It's just a t-test. Mean squared error is, a, is a, just an estimate of variance. That's all it is, so why not use it? We have it there. So really this is literally a t-test. That's all it is. It's just using the square root of two times the mean squared error over n, little n. Little n is the number of subjects per group. So, when you, if you have four groups, you have um, we have twelve possible comparisons. No, four no, choose two. That's 24, 12, six, You have six possible comparisons. You probably don't want to do six comparisons. You probably want to do maybe three. Like I said the other day, if, you have, if we had a situation where we have four groups and one of them is an experimental group and then we have three controls, you might just want to just do one comparison. Because you might look at the control groups and say, they're all the same. Right? Let's just compare it to one of the control groups. So you might just be doing one comparison. You might want to compare <coughs> excuse me, all the, all the control groups to all six. It's possible. Right, so there's six comparisons, right? Is that right? one to two, two to three, three to four, one to four, four to three, four to two. Yeah, there's six. Should we use four factorial over two factorial divided by two? Yeah, it's a pretty simple procedure. The thing, like I said, I want you to take take note of is we're going to use mean squared error as an error term, and it's a t test. So here's another one the studentized range. It's another freaking t test. It just, instead of using two times mean squared error, you use mean squared error. And this allows you to compare all possible, this is when you do all the comparisons. So this is, say, you're going to compare all six means. The larger one minus the smaller one, that's the L and the S, and it gives you what's called a Q value. The, the statistic here is Q. You never report this, by the way. When you're reading a paper, you will never see someone say, and the Q value, they just say, uh, oh, we compared it using uh, a student test, and without these means different. So a lot of times you'll see a graph in the paper. Uh, it'll look something like this. So you'll, it'll, let's say we have this. Let's say we have four groups, and there are three control groups and one experimental group. What you would see probably is you would see this, and it would just have an asterisk for each of them, and then in the in the figure caption it would say uh, means with an asterisk are significant. There, there, you would never report one, because basically the idea is you, sh- you should be able to get that from the things that are reported, because when you report an F value uh, in a paper, you tend to, very often you even report the mean squared error, so it's it's all there. So somebody, if they had to, could redo it. Okay, so this is how that works. Then there's the newman cools test. And you went, wait, what? All we've done here is we've rearranged the student test. Okay? We've rearranged things. And we come up with this value. So we look up a critical value. That's what Q with R, R is the size of the range. Okay? Any set of comparisons with range r, so how big do they have to be? So, what you do is you take a look and see what's the smallest difference I'm interested in when I look at my data. So, you look at your data after you've done your over, and you, think, you know, let me say, okay, anything that's bigger than three different from each other. So, you put three in there. So, you actually look it up. This, this is a value that you look up from a table, the q value. Then, you multiply that times the square root of the mean squared error over n, and then you get a value called w sub r. That just tells you how big the range has to be. So you actually come up with a number, and it says anything different by let's make up a number seven. Those means are different. Okay. It's a very common one. I've used this one myself. But I honestly, whereas most things I know offhand what the uh, formula is because I use them enough, I don't know the form. Nobody knows formulas for these things. They're not the kind of thing that you just have to give your time. It just doesn't work. That way. Still all comparison range of three. Did I just say three? I say seven. Doesn't matter. Look it up. Go from there. Uh, There's another test like this called Tukey's HSD. HSD stands for honestly significantly different. Tukey was the guy I told you about you put the term exploratory data analysis. And Tukey has a similar thing. He just says, always make it the biggest possible one. So if you've got one group that's one and one group that's 10, then it's a range of nine. So I've just shown you some. There's there's all kinds of other ones too. There's a Chaffé's test. I didn't play with Chaffé's test other than to say no one uses it because it's so conservative a test that sometimes when you have a significant anola, it, it still tells you none of your needs are different. And that seems like something you don't want to have. Which one should you use? And people ask that because it's a, it's a good practical question, which post-hoc test should you use? Most people do all of them, you shouldn't do this. What most people do is they get the data, they try any possible blend and say, well, it fits with the hypothesis I'm using. And that's why, one of the many reasons the post-hoc tests bother me is that um, I've often thought, and this comes from my old staff in grad school, uh, Ian Spence, and he used to say that if you're interested in two means being different, just test those two means being different. Why did you do an experiment with all these other groups? Uh, that usually falls on ears that can't hear very well. I've tried saying this, for example, you know, with, with one of my honor students, and I tell them just do that, and I get the same thing. Well. Everybody else says that, okay, fine. I don't like it. And that's probably just because the expense had on my development as a scientist. I'd stick to one kind in a paper. <laughs> it raises a few red flags when you're reviewing an article and you look at it. In an experiment one, they did a two key test. In experiment two, they did a Newton Cools. In experiment three, it's like, uh, I think I know why you did that. And typically you'll see that. Um, I've used HSD usually. It's the most, I've found it's the most, it's the best, um, the best compromise between being conservative. Because I want conservatism in my tests. In my statistics, I want, and science should be conservative. You know, because you're making statements about the natural world, you want to be conservative. But you don't want to be so conservative that nothing ever gets discovered. So it's, to me, Tukey's HSD is a nice compromise between being conservative but not too conservative. So, again, these are small things. I wouldn't get too worked up over post hocs, just as a rule. Any questions, though? Do you have any questions that I can answer about post hocs? Like if, if I was ever asking you what a post hoc test was, all you say is a post hoc test is a procedure carried out to determine if there are differences between specific means in a, after you've done an analysis, analysis. And they all use mean squared error as an error term, you know, if, if basically a riff on a t-test. They're all just riffs on t-tests, they really are. That's not smart. Let's talk about transformations I Should just put these together in one slideshow, please. but I haven't, and I'm not going to. I say that every year, I don't do it. So, okay. This is this one here is a little, I mean, the, the post hoc one we just talked about. Just same thing with this one. It's about just it's about the idea, the notion here that this is something one could do. So sometimes we look at our data with an exploratory data analysis, which you should always start that way. Always start with EDA, and okay, we run the ANOVA and we get nothing. So you do your ANOVA and you get like, and then you look it up, the, the probability is p is uh, greater than 0.05, and that's when you go, oh no. But when you look at your graph. You see the means are wildly different. You're like, well, why didn't it find it? It didn't find a difference. And there is, I know there's a difference here. I can see it. I think I told you the other day that, uh, this might have been when we were remote, but my PhD advisor always said, the statistics there to, to, to tell you what you already know. You should have been able to look at your data and say, I know what happened here. I'm typically not that interested in effects that have to be Pull out of data to the point where I can't see it just on a graph, but if I did enough things to the numbers, they'll, they'll tell me. Again, as and then I keep talking with Dr. Spence, seeing Spence, the guy that taught me stats in grad school, but he used to say, you know, the yeah, numbers will do you anything you want. When you tortured, they'll tell you anything. The numbers don't know where they come from. You can screw around with you want, and eventually, you'll find something that fits your hypothesis. That's not what you want to do. But sometimes you look at something and go, there's something here, but it's not showing up. It's like Bob Dylan. You know, there's something happening, but you don't know what it is. That was literally just for me. The best guess here is we have violated an assumption. So remember, all the math behind analysis of variance has these assumptions built in. So, we're probably violating the assumption. And it's usually variances. You cannot mathematically fix violating the assumption of independence of events. That's not something you can fix. The way you fix that is you don't do a NOVA. So, that's not a good fix. Um, You can't fix random selection, like random samples. But you know what? Violating random sampling is something you can violate the crap out of random sampling, and it doesn't matter. You can really badly violate um, normally distributed. You can violate that to help to the point of you can have zeros of ones, so it'd be binary. That's figured out by doing what are called Monte Carlo experiments. They're just simulations where people just generate data. They actually know the population distribution, but they generate data by sampling. And they do maybe a million possible combinations, and they find out that it doesn't really vary from when you violate haven't violated, violated those, that assumption. But you can't, so you can't fix this with independence of this, but variance, what's called the homogeneity of variance assumption. That all the variances are equal. You don't want to violate that, but you can maybe fix that. And the rule of thumb is, and I think I said this when we talked about t-tests. Is one variance four times bigger than another? If, if that's the case, that's usually a case where you go, eh, that's a little bit bad. T tests oh sorry, F tests are pretty robust when it comes to violating b- the b- assumption of uh, the homogeneity of variance assumption. They're pretty robust. But at some point it breaks down, the math breaks down. So let's fix it. Let's let's make the variances the same. Would you like that transition that was different? I enjoyed that. I, however, quite easily entertained. So what can we do? What you do is you transform your data through some sort of mathematical operation. Through some sort of mathematical operation, you change your numbers. Now this isn't the mathematical operation where you say, well, they're not different enough, so I'm going to add 17 to all the numbers in this group. That's called making up your data. That's called academic misconduct. That's the kind of thing that gets you fired. That's the kind of thing that gets you kicked out of school. Don't make up your data, not worth it. You'll hear people say this this isn't right. You can't do that. The numbers say this. And my response to them is sure, it's fair. And why do I think that's fair? when I just said, you know, you can't just take one group and add 17 to it. You're just changing the units. So if I said, if I looked at all these numbers and I said, I don't like these numbers, they're, they're, they're I don't like the way they, they're distributed, I'm going to change that, and I'm going to change it like this. I'm going to multiply, I'm going to multiply it times 5 ninths and subtract 32. Point. Just from listening to you so far, yeah. we're just making it easier to interpret the data. We're, we're making it easier to find a difference we're pretty sure is there. Okay. And we're changing the units. And if I multiply times 5 ninths, or even better, multiply times 5 by 9 and take the result and subtract 32, you know what I've done? Anybody listen to the radio ever? Probably know anymore. If you hear a news report from across the river, they report the temperature in freedom units instead of Celsius like the rest of the known world. I'm sorry, Fahrenheit. Right? They use Fahrenheit. We use Celsius because we're sensible-ish. If you take a Fahrenheit and you multiply, Fahrenheit temperature, multiply times five times five nights and subtract 32 in Celsius. Is Celsius more or less a measure of temperature than Fahrenheit? No. It's just another way of looking at it. We express units all the time. Have you ever bought something from an American website? Of course you have. And you look and you say, okay, uh, I have to change this to Canadian dollars. So how much I'm really paying? So you are and you go, what's our dollar worth right now? It's, it's, uh, I don't know, whatever the hell it's worth, eighty-one cents American. You convert. You're just changing the units. So it's completely fair. There's nothing wrong with doing this. My favorite one is looking at Celsius to Fahrenheit or vice versa because it sounds really like I'm doing something sketchy, and I'm not doing something sketchy. Right. So, and to convert from Celsius to Fahrenheit, you multiply times nine fifths and add thirty. They're, they're measuring the same thing; it's just on a different scale. We do this all the time. So, there's nothing wrong with this, but it might. And this is what we talked about this. We were assignment one, and I. And I asked you if does the distribution change when you convert from uh, centimeters to inches. And I gave the marks full marks. If you said yes, or if you said no, you're saying, Dave, wait, that can't be true. Well the num- it does bunch things up because the numbers are smaller, and that's true. So if you said that, that's fine. And then other people said it does that, but they're all still measuring height. So it, it doesn't change the distribution of heights. That's also true. So the raw numbers change. But the thing it's measuring doesn't change. So that's one of those cases where literally both those things are true and like both interpretations are false. All we're doing here is changing units. And that's what I'm talking about. So here's the first one, log transformation. So it's taking the logarithm of a number. Do you remember what logarithms are? Do you need me to teach you logarithms in 40 seconds? Put your hand up if you do it. don't be embarrassed. Thank you. It's easy to do, okay. This is literally the worst eraser in the history of erasers for blackboards. Oh yeah, you can't tell what that says now. It's completely gone. So, and I'm gonna just use a simple base 10 logarithm. Um, we would typically actually use base but let's just do base 10, because it illustrates a lot. Okay, the log base 10 of 100 is 2, 10 is 1, base 10 log of 10 is 1, base 10 log of 0 is 1, the base 10 log of 1,000 is 3. All you're doing is this, so it's 10 squared, 10 to the 1st, 10 to the 0, you probably you remember that taking something to the 0 exponent makes it 1, it's just one of those things. Yeah, it makes sense in a wacky sort of way. Yeah, yeah cubed is 1,000. So what you're doing is you're finding what the exponent is. Yeah. And you can see what that's going to do. It's going to turn everything into much big numbers really small. It sucks them way down. Way more than it sucks down small numbers. And we use logarithmic scales all the time, Decibels. Right? Decibels are a logarithmic scale. Seventy decibels is ten times louder than sixty decibels. 140 decibels, which is so loud that you will perforate your eardrum, typically, is ten times louder than 130 decibels, which is about as loud as you can take and not be completely uncomfortable. When you're listening to music, uh, 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 seeing a band, and you're standing right by the PA, that's when 130. 140 will, you'll, you're, you're, you'll bleed out of your ears. I'm not kidding. It's like you're, you're about to feel great. That's how loud it is at an airport. When there's jet planes, you see all the people wearing ear ear protection. So we use Richter scale for earthquakes, a Richter scale of energy. If you don't live in anywhere where there's earthquakes, you probably don't know this. So you see for example, there's one in one in San Francisco. somebody google how big the San Francisco earthquake was in 1990 or 1989 or 90 what the, what, what, how big it was so you can just do that We'll all do it see the first person tells us how big the earthquake. Yeah, it's 6.9. Very good. A 6.9. We had an earthquake here. What? About six years ago, there was a very small earthquake. It wasn't centered here, it was centered west. And it was about a four. But it was nothing. It was like this. My wife was teaching French at the, the federal government at the forestry center, and she felt it there. I didn't feel it at all. When you live that way, four kilometers. And that was like four. You're saying the San Francisco limit caused all those that horrible damage and stopped a World Series game and all those other things. It's only 2.9 more? No, that means it's, let's let's make it seven. We're going to round it. That means it's a thousand times more. Because Richter scale is a log scale. Uh, when you look at exponential growth of viruses, gee, I don't know where I got that example from. That's The best way to look at that is a log scale. So we use logarithmic units all the time. So let's take the log of something. So any exponential curves like reaction time, like growth of viruses. Think about reaction time. When it gets to the very end, it's going to be a lot more variance. And this is a very, very small one, right? Negative values are a problem. You can't take a logarithm of anything, zero or less. They're undefined. They don't exist. Those The way you fix that is first you add a constant. So let's say you've got a minus five in there. Just add six to all the numbers, then take the log. So in that case it's the log of x plus k. You're also typically, we aren't going to be using log base 10. I just did that for illustrative purposes. We typically would use log of the base e, which is sometimes known as log, because it's ln. It's the natural logarithm. It's log to the base e. It's just a it, of, mathematical constant, like pi or something like that. It's 2.71828, nothing. Okay, see Oftentimes, what you would typically use is you'd use natural law. Reaction times, it's great. I've had a couple of times when students have been doing their honors thesis with me, they use reaction times as, as variables, and they've come and they've said to me, I didn't get a significant amount of variance, and I said, let's look at your graphs. And I look and I say, don't you notice how much variance is in that one? And they say, yes, but I don't know what to do. And I say, how did you pass that class you took with me last year? Remember? We're going to, put, usually it's just me going to create another variable, make it the natural logarithm. Oh, look, it worked. Questions about logarithms for the square root? Okay, square root, you probably know what square roots are. This is used a lot with counted data. I'm not going to go into why. I don't know that it's necessary here. Um, So how many of this are in this group? How many? How many? Just counting how many? Number correct. Number of correct response. Number of words recalled. It's a very common independent variable. Right? So a lot of times you have counted data taking the square root fixes it. This is when the means are proportional to the variance. So the bigger the mean gets, the bigger the variance gets, but you can actually graph it and get a straight line. And that's, that tends to happen with counted data. That tends to happen with counted data. It should make some sense when you think about it, I guess, because if the average in some group is one correct, there's not gonna be a lot of variance, right? There's not gonna be a lot of variance. If there's a lot, if there's a higher number, there's more gonna be more, more variance, so it needs to be proportional to the variance. And square roots fix this. You might want to add a constant first because, again, we don't want to deal with negative numbers. You can take the square root of negative numbers, but they're imaginary numbers, and I don't know how you use stats on that in the numbers. Excuse me. So, so if you've got some negative numbers, just add a constant. Same thing, just like the water. And then take the square root. Reciprocal transformation. This is another great one. This is just flipping the number over. So if it's two-thirds, now it's three-halves. Right? Just reciprocal. This makes the range much smaller, so the variance gets smaller. Because it's going to suck big numbers way down compared to small numbers. So it makes small numbers get bigger. Right? This is good with latencies, so time. time to complete a task. Well, it's turning time the speed, isn't it? We do that all the time. Think about it. you say, how long does it take to get to... It would take me to get here from home on my bike. It takes about 12 minutes. How fast am I going? Well, it's five kilometers. So I can do that. Kilometers per hour. Right? So we do this all the time actually. The unit we use for, we don't use latency typically, we use speed. Right? How fast are you going? Not how long is it going to take to get there. Sometimes people will say how, how far away is something and some people say well, two hours. Right? This is another one that I've had students, uh, honor students over the years. I mean I've had people do all these things. I've, I've had, when I applied for promotion a couple of years ago, I had to count out all the people who were doing with me. Maybe it's 97. It's a bit of a lot, I've been doing this double a um, And I've had people with the same thing latency. Like, oh look, Dave, it didn't work. It's like it's just, it's latency. Reciprocal, come on. Oh yeah. So you're just turning running, it's turning twenty speed. so we deal. So, so far, I think they're all kind of sensible. They have an intuitive appeal. This is the weird one. And in fact, this is the one that I've used the most in my career, and that I've had my students use the most. And this is with proportions, because I deal a lot with percent correct. I deal a lot with percent correct. And when you think about percentages, you end up with big bunch in the middle, very few perfect, and very few zero. So if you look at the distribution, it kind of looks like this. If the distribution of variance, which is an odd thing to think of, but it ends up looking kind of like a football, Canadian football, American football, rugby ball, if you want to use a different cultural ball. This fixes this. And it stretches out the ends, pulls the football, instead of being fat in the middle, it makes it more like uh, the profile of a hockey puck. And it's not just the arcsine. And you're you're saying, oh, that's what that weird button is in my calculator. It's two times the arcsine square root. And I'm going to level with you here, I don't know why that works. I can't remember enough trigonometry to remember why this pulls this pulse is like that. But it does. So 2 times arcsine squared root. x is this. I would never ask you which one you use on a test or something. That's, I mean, yeah, I could, because they're open, they're open to a press and all that stuff. But even on the quizzes where you don't have all your resources, I wouldn't ask you ask you what a transformation is. I wouldn't ask you the individual. And two arcsine square root, and it fixes proportions. Now, the question you might ask is, when do I? And there are others. These I just ran over. I guess the four most popular. Before you run into, when do you transform your data? You don't always do it. It's not like something you do as a matter of course. You don't say, well, it didn't work. Let's see if I just keep throwing mathematical procedures at these numbers that they'll find something, that's not how you do it. It's a case of when you violated the homogeneity of variance assumption. Every year at the honors thesis presentations, uh, the students practice their talks to all of us before any of you can hear them, and they practice them, and they practice them, and they practice them. Right. And I'm known for a couple of things when I do their practice. I'm known for this. Do you have any error bars in your graphs? The first thing I ask. And the next one is Have you tried transforming your data? I believe you violated the assumption of homogeneity of variance. And it's to the point where my colleagues actually laugh because they totally expect you to it. And almost oh, one person every year does it. A lot of people don't do this and don't think about it. And I've had again a number of occasions where I've been a reviewer of an article for a journal. And people run something and it doesn't like they have three or four experiments and one doesn't work and they're at a loss. And I said, like, just transform the data, it'll be fine. I'm sure of it. So if the variances are messy, use the guidelines I've given you today and pick the right one and try it. Um, it may very well save a project. That said, if your data don't violate any assumptions, you don't transform. So I had a case with using proportions when I was in grad school. Uh, well, there were percentages, which are still proportions. And my PhD advisor said, why didn't you transform your data? So it didn't have to. It worked. It's a little messy, but it worked. Why make my article more, a little more confusing to people who aren't very mathematically sophisticated? Stuff they should know, that a lot of people don't know. So I'm just gonna leave this because it worked. I'm saying, I can go do it and show you that it still works, but I don't see where that's. She was like, okay, no. Now you always present untransformed data. So when you do a graph, because if I look at a graph of percent correct, I know what that means. I know 100% means perfect, zero is, is, is not perfect. And if, and if you've got four alternatives, I know 25 is chance. If you have two alternatives, I know 50 is chance. So I know that, I, I just, because that's just how the world works. I don't know what two times the arc sine square root of 25 is, if I'm looking for chance, and that's four alternatives. I just don't know, that's not a thing that, Graphs are supposed to, they're for communication. Right? You're presenting data, it's communication. Analysis doesn't have is, is about communication in a sense, but it's also trying to find stuff that's there that's sort of maybe hidden into others. So you don't present untransformed data. You make it exceedingly clear in your results section of your paper that you transformed your data. You have to say that. And you say what the transformation is, and you say why you did it. But you don't present, you don't present transform data, nobody's gonna understand what you do. Except for people, you know, can do trig in their heads. I, don't, I, I do know people like that, and I find them disturbing. It's a little weird. Oh, you just know arc science? That's weird. Okay, next. You know, when I was in school, they did teach us squares of numbers up to 25, so we can do square roots a little bit in our heads and oh, all that stuff. That's why people sort of tail into Gen X can still do things like that, like me. But, um, they didn't teach us <laughs> <print> tables, <laughs> we didn't have to put free tables in our heads, so it just wasn't a nightmare. Questions about transformations? Yeah, nothing. Yeah. you okay? Because if you have, nothing, that, that's fine. Perfectly correct. Well, I mean, generally, but that's not in my life, I'm really quite disturbed. One of these, again, I'm kidding. And I
1: swear it's the last time And I swear it's my last try And we'll walk in circles around this whole block Walk on the cracks of the same old sidewalks Then we'll talk about leaving town Yeah, we'll talk about leaving I swear it's the last time And I swear it's my last try